calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Welcome to the show and happy Halloween. Diana Foe and I are back with part two of our scariest story this season. But first, here's Diana with a quick recap. Welcome and happy Halloween, folks. In the ruins of Mohenjo-Dara part one, we're introduced to Noor, a young woman who left the United States after the tragic death of her brother and ends up teaching at a Pakistani cadet school. Now, during a school field trip to this ancient city, Noor and her fellow teachers and students hear that their school had been attacked. And then they're left stranded in the ruins by their bus driver, who refuses to stay because of local superstitions during what they call the Day of the Goat. So without further ado, let's dive right back into In the Ruins of Mohenjo-Daro by Usman T. Malik, narrated by Shiromi Arserio. A mile from the city proper, in a narrow ditch between two rocks, Noor undid her nalis string, lowered the shalwa, and squatted. She put a hand between her legs, brought it out, and stared at the viscous stain glisten in the flashlight's glow. Blood. The smell was stronger than usual. Fishy. Perhaps it was the air down here. She wiped her hand carefully on the rock, leaving a handprint with beetles squirming in the digits, and let the flow abate. She finished up with paper napkins and bottled water, then rose and stood, watching the dot of fire amidst the mounds, one finger scratching beneath her hijab. She had shown Dara her scars, the raw pink-white ridges coiling serpentine around her collarbone and left shoulder. The thought filled her with amazement at her own daring. She'd never shown them to anyone, not even cheery, gentle Mark, with whom she spent one night in Hanover before she left for Pakistan. Her lawyer had appealed for repatriation, and to everyone's surprise, most of all her own, succeeded. She supposed it made sense. She'd never been charged and couldn't just be guilty by association. Regardless, it was a frightening time, the last of her teenage years. Mark. God, she hadn't thought about him in a decade, 
although in the beginning he was all Nora could think about. They had met at rehab soon after they released her. She was required to attend weekly sessions while arrangements were made. Mark was bipolar. Nor was benighted, terrified of what her past held and the future might bring. They'd made love in darkness, his lips pressed to her neck, the comforting smells of his hair and his body and his seed caustic to her senses. And if he noticed the roughness of her flesh, or was dismayed by how she sobbed afterwards, clutched her clothes and fled never to return, well, he did not call to ask about it. The night wind gusted, making Noor shiver. She patted her hijab, tucked her chemise into place, and walked back to rejoin the group huddling by the fire. Junaid crouched on his haunches. He held a lighter in one hand and a newspaper roll in the other. He clicked the wheel and a flame sprouted between his fingers. A red-hot tongue of fire whooshed to life and began to devour the paper. Did you find them? Noor said. He shook his head. It's a big place. They could be hiding anywhere. Although when I do... He gritted his teeth, thrust the burning roll into the dwindling flames, and stirred the cinders with a twig. I'll beat them to a pulp, I swear. The fire shuddered in his eyes. They had reached a compromise with Hamid. He would leave the bus behind in case it turned freezing cold, and hitch a ride with the watchman to Boehner, the nearest town. There, he'd try to contact and update Colonel Mahmoud on their situation, as well as find out details of the confrontation between the military and the militants. I really wish you would all come with me, he had told Junaid and Cindy before hopping on the bike, but that was impossible. Abar and Rahim were still missing. Mr. Junaid, one of the cadets said, may we have some more shima? We're hungry. In a bit, he said, then whispered to Tabinda, how much food is left? Another meal? Maybe two if we're stingy? We didn't prepare for this. She raised her palms to the fire, then shouted, Who wants to tell ghost stories? Me, called someone, and another muttered, Doc. They told stories, gathered around the flames, ignoring the thrumming black cold, licking their flesh. They gushed out tall tales that became stranger and stranger. A silent, ugly schoolboy bullied by his classmates is wrestled and stripped and thrown to the ground. He turns into a horned beetle, burrows into the earth, returns night after night as a monstrous insect with a boy's face peering into his tormentor's windows, tapping and chirping until they go mad from lack of sleep. A man on a lonely mountain road comes upon a goat, decides to steal it and carry it home, only to find the animal growing heavy on his back, its limbs elongating, cleft hooves dropping until they dangle an inch above the ground. The thief throws the animal off and flees, and monstrous laughter chases him all the way home. The soot-covered raven man flitting from tree to tree in a Hindu cremation ground. The pregnant woman in the bushes with snake tresses and backward feet. A knot of wood exploded in the fire, and an ember landed between Nora's legs, startling her. She towed it out with her sneaker, shook the stiffness from her back. She opened her mouth to ask if anyone wanted another blanket. I know a good one, she said instead, and blinked with surprise. They turned, fire-lit faces pale and somber. 
Eyes roomy from smoke and ash stared at her. My mother was a teacher at an Ashkenazi Jewish center in America, she said. Her pulse was pounding in her throat. She told me the story of the sent goat. It scared me witless as a child. Have you heard it? They shook their heads. In the old days, the Israelites performed a rite, called the Surir Mishtelach, on the Day of Atonement. Two goats were selected in a ceremony, healthy, unblemished specimens. Lots were drawn over them. On one was written Lord, on the other, Azazel. The goat whose lot drew Lord was slaughtered immediately as redemption for the nation's crimes that year. The other... She looked around the campfire at their reddened, glassy eyes and quivering mouths. Anyone know what Azazel means? Yes, Tabinda murmured. She was sitting next to Noor, her hands knotted together in her lap. A demon of the wilderness. That's correct, Noor nodded. The second goat was sent into the desert, supposedly laden with the sins of Israel, to Azazel, the wild demon, the pagan god, waiting to devour it. Azazel also translates as the goat that departs. The word scapegoat in English comes from that. She smiled bitterly. The animal sacrifice and exile were symbolic of what might happen to an unrepentant tribesman. This was how they made themselves feel better. The cadets' faces were masks dappled orange and black. They watched Noor with unflinching eyes. The freckled boy, Tabriz, leaned and whispered in his neighbor's ear, and they both giggled. That's a horrible story, Junaid said, his teeth gleamed in the firelight like a serrated knife. I didn't know you were so twisted, Miss Hamdani. He wet his lips and grinned. His hand moved slowly to his lap. Was he turned on? Oddly, she didn't feel repulsed, just frigid and tired, and grateful when Dara got up and brought more tinder. Tabriz whined for dinner, and Tabinda handed out four foil-wrapped packets of shirmal. They disappeared quickly. Someone wondered why Abar and Rahim weren't back. Perhaps a small group could go look for them in the ruins. Tabinda said, no, so forcefully it startled them into silence. Junaid stared at her and said he was sure they'd be back when they got hungry. The fire whooshed and retreated from the night, and Junaid and Dara piled on more wood. A couple of cadets laid out their blankets on the ground near the fire. Before they could start settling in, from beyond the looming citadel came scraping sounds. Pebbles rolled. Someone was walking in the dark near the Buddhist stupa. They all glanced up. Just a black sky crinkled with a faint yellow moon. In the distance, a door swung open on screeching hinges. A shout and a crash. Haba! yelled Junaid, springing to his feet. Is that you? One of the cadets screamed and shrank back from a night-thickened alley, twenty feet away from which a tall figure jutted its shadowed face. It spasmed briefly, rotating its arms laden with glinting glass bangles above its head, and vanished. The pounding of boots on stony ground. In the ruins, someone laughed. The sound was shrill and intermittent, more bird-like than human, and masked the running footsteps until they faded. Junaid shouted the boy's names and plunged into the dark beyond the fire, the halo from his flashlight jittering up and down the streets. 
The sound came from beside Noor. She turned. Tabenda's face was doughy, a faint twitch at the left corner of her lips. Her forehead glistened with moisture. Her chubby hand was at her throat, massaging it vigorously. She's sweating, Nora thought with wonder. In this cold? An unfamiliar dry smell flooded her nose, triggering memories that disappeared before she could seize them, leaving her breathless and frightened. Her eyes teared up from a sudden raging headache. Tabinda whispered so softly Nora doubted anyone else heard. The words made the hair stand on the back of her neck. She would remember them later, like a dream song or a grief prayer running in her head again and again while the abandoned city rustled and the river stink of dead fish and reeds and gelatinous old creatures crept into her nostrils. He opens his mouth so, said Tabinda, the terrible emperor of the night. The cadets held hands, bleary eyes peering in every direction. The ancient houses were entombed in night. Narrow alleys meandered off into the black. So much space devoid of life, yet something stirred. Somewhere in the ruins, Junaid stumbled, crashed and cursed before falling silent. Nora's vision pulsed with her heartbeat. What's happening, miss? cried one of the boys. To the bus, she hissed. Now. They gaped at her before turning and dashing to the vehicle. Falling over each other, they covered the distance in seconds, piled into the bus, burrowed into their seats, nor slammed the lock home once Tabinda was aboard. They all stared at the mounds gleaming like gravestones in the moonlight. What was that? said one cadet in a hitching voice. Someone turn on the light, said another. No. The boys, Nor said, probably lost in calling for help. By laughing? Are you fucking kidding me? Tabriz said incredulously, watch your language. Screw that, did you even hear it? He leaned his brow against the window glass and gazed at the bonfire wavering by the citadel. That wasn't a ba. didn't even sound human. I shouldn't have returned. I thought, I thought, I was wrong, Tabinda cried. She'd sagged into a back seat. Her hands like small animals were hiding beneath her ample thighs. Nor swallowed. Her lips were parched. Maybe an animal. A jackal, perhaps, she said. Didn't sound like a jackal either, Debris said. Who was that man in the alley? The terrible emperor of the night, Nor thought incoherently. She didn't have the energy to grope her way back to question Tabinda. The woman was sunk in her seat, head lolling on her breasts like a rotten fruit. Nor took note of the remaining water bottles under the bench behind the driver's seat, two 24-packs. She removed one, drank from it, passed it around. Someone made a choking sound, then fell silent. Nor raised a fist and knuckled her throbbing right temple. Tabriz rapped at his window with his knuckles. Someone told him to shut the fuck up. He glared back, tap, tap. They waited for Junaid. Their breath misted the windshield glass and white sheathed it until their peering faces disappeared. Tap, 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 tap. Sometime later, Shirmal was handed around again. Nora declined the bread. An odd lethargy had settled on her. The kids chewed, filling the bus with sounds of gnashing teeth and crumpling aluminum. 
Nora's neck ached as if steel rivets were being driven into it. She fell into sleep. She was a teenager, dressed in a black shirt, blue jeans, and leather boots, standing in the middle of Mahendro Daru with a bomb vest strapped under her clothes, her hair whiplashed in the desert breeze. Her gaze was fixed on the Citadel, now shaped like the Port Authority bus terminal in New York, stripes of neon blue and red racing around its sides. Nora's finger caressed the trigger, poking her flat stomach. Her throat was dry. A finger prodded her in the small of her back. Munir. He was young and sallow, exactly how she remembered him. Eyes large and white from thyroid proptosis. For dad, he said, voice guttural, toad-like. He pointed a bitten fingernail at hundreds of skeletal men, women, and children, twitching their way through sun-baked alleys. They wore business suits, sweatshirts, dresses, and tourist caps. Suitcases and backpacks dangled from bones picked clean by time. They converged at the terminal, like pilgrims at the Kaaba, pawing at the steel armature, phalanges digging into bricks, clenched fists thudding on glass. For their sins. Go, little sister. Go. Lanier looked at her. His bulging eyes made him look shocked and insane. Soon, I will join you. He shoved her forward. She staggered and began to walk. The people of the city pounded on the walls of the terminal. The half-flesh on a few faces was swollen and distorted, washed by electrified colors blazing from the building's facade. Nora's vest was rough and heavy, and it was difficult to breathe. It was summer. She was sweating. Her finger itched. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world 
that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I can't, she whispered. I don't want to. But no one was listening, not even God. Faith yanked her forward and she went on a loyal trot, getting closer to point zero. The crowd jittered to the tune of death. An infant drooped from his mother's shoulder and pulled her straggly hair. And in a minute, there would be blood. There would be devastation. Noor turned and bolted. The ground shifted beneath her. Munir's face was everywhere. No, you bitch, come back! Coward! He screamed. The world was white noise, and it hurt her head. She ran and ran and ran. She would hide somewhere. If she could just reach safety, everything would be all right. No pain, no suffering, no dying, no shame, no guilt. Nor sprinted, and the dead sprinted behind her, hundreds of taluses, tarsals, and metatarsals rattling on the ground. Pasha body is dead, you miserable slut, her brother shrieked. He's dead, and nothing will do but youthful human blood. Nor woke, shivering. It was freezing and quiet. The bus was dark, the seats empty. Did Junaid return and take them all elsewhere? Why wouldn't he wake her? Empty bottles, squares of foil and shirmal crumbs littered the bus floor. She pulled the shawl tight around her chest and struggled upright. The windows were blinded with white and for a moment she thought they were covered with snow, like her bedroom window back in Hanover after a storm. Dad would clear it, his gloved hands patting the glittering frost off. But Dad was gone. Extraordinary rendition, her lawyer called it. She peered closely and saw the white was fog. Thick, smoky layers pressed against the glass, consuming the bus. Sometime during the night it had crept in from the river. She glanced at her watch, it was just past midnight. She wanted to turn the headlights on, but was afraid of what she might see. The dream hadn't left her yet. At least her headache was gone. She made her way to the exit and peered out, white upon pristine white. Wasn't white the sum of all colors? Was it Goethe who said color itself was a degree of darkness? She couldn't even see three feet away. There was a metallic tang in her mouth as if she could taste the vapor. Junaid! she yelled. Instantly, the fog devoured the cry. A bar! Tabinda! Anyone! No answer. Just a susurration of dust and weeds in the wind. No night birds sang. No insects chirped. She was blind and alone. Terror came then, on dark wings, engulfing her heart. She shoved it away, even though her stomach and bladder quivered. How could she not have heard them leave? She retreated from the door and clicked on an overhead light. The glow spread like a thin puddle. Her brown eyes were wide and crimson-webbed in the rearview mirror. She looked like she was about to scream. Her hijab had fallen off and lay draped over her shoulder. Nora fixed it with trembling fingers. Maybe she should drive away, leave them all here. The thought was so powerful, she actually took a couple steps toward the driver's seat before stopping. There was no key in the ignition. 
of course. Junaid had it. Movement in the periphery of her vision made her turn. The bus door had slid open. Tabinda stood in the doorway, a silent, rotund silhouette with streams of fog snaking between her ankles. Helplessness had left her eyes, leaving a glassy calm behind. I came back for you, she said. Nora wanted to weep for joy. She ran and flung herself at the older woman. Tabinda's arms tightened around her. Sorry, the kids were cold and you were sleeping. Where are they now? In a warm place. Nora squeezed her one more time and stepped back. Let's go. Have you seen Junaid? Tabinda shook her head. No. Her face was half paralyzed now. The corner of her mouth sagged. Her left eye was half-lidded. Are you all right? Tabinda massaged her cheek. I had a stroke some years back. This happens once in a great while. Were you here in the ruins when you had the stroke? Nora said. The question came to her familiarly, as if she'd asked this before in a dream. Tabinda's lips had cracked from cold. They bled a little when she tried to smile. How'd you know? She held the door open. Shouldn't we get going? They strode through air dense as snow. Nor couldn't for the life of her understand how Tabinda kept her bearings. Shadows heaved and parted before them. They stepped on twigs, nettles, sharp rocks. The fog sucked its breath in, exhaled and rushed past. When the texture of the ground changed, she knew they were on the city streets. Chips of masonry crunched underfoot. Stones, brick shards, gum wrappers, a worker's implement. At least that's what she thought it was. Long and pale, it gleamed in the moonlight. Before she could bend to look at it, her companion took her hand and jerked her in the opposite direction. This way. Tabinda scythed the haze with an outstretched arm. They approached a towering structure. The Buddhist stupa. Nora put her hand out and scraped a fingernail across the wall. How cold and brooding and alien it felt with mist clinging to it. She remembered her dream. Shiny white phalanges groping the building. And her stomach turned. She pinched her chalois and rubbed the brick dust off. I liked your little history lesson, Tabinda said, but it has more meaning than the Israelites gave it. What? It describes existence accurately. The two goats are life and death, both horrendous conditions. Gods are vindictive after all. Would you like to hear a similar story? It's from the Mahabharata. Nor hesitated, then said, Sure. In the beginning were three cities that orbited the earth. They weren't happy places. In the distance, vibration rose, faint as insect static. Nora cocked her head. It was coming from beyond the citadel, deep in the night. What's that? The cities fought each other with iron thunderbolts smelted in a hundred thousand suns, until one invented a unique weapon. Tabinda stopped. Before them was a twisted iron door, flanked by massive brick colonnades. Rust blanketed it from top to bottom, 
except for the emblem of the dancing girl, hand on her hip, stamped in the middle. Parts of the figure were eroded by age, but even through tendrils of fog, the dancer's eyes, now open and swollen with madness, were visible. A brass padlock dangled from a moon-shaped hasp. The door was ajar. The weapon was wielded with the force of the universe behind it, and it annihilated the rival cities. The cost of preparing it was grave, though. The inhabitants of the triumphant city had to use the blood of entire nations on Earth. Tabenda pushed the door, and it screeched inward, trailing the vapor Paul draped over it. She stepped back, letting Noor peer in. After you? Inside was blackness, thick as blood. The noise in the sky was louder now. Whack, whack, whack. It sounded like a piece of meat stuck in the blades of an electric fan. Hold on. What is that? Nor said uneasily. Her breath steamed and dissolved in the mist. The professor stood enshrouded in white, her uneven face still as a deep, dark pool. It's the army chopper come looking for us, she said. Don't worry. They can't land in this fog. Nor tried to back out, but Tabinda was quick. A two-handed fist slammed Nor's shoulder blade. Agony shot through her spine, buckling her, sending her flying through the doorway. The black rushed at her. She flailed her arms, trying to grab a handhold, but tripped and smashed headlong into something solid. The world exploded into fractals, gray and black and grainy, a buzzing in her ears, something circling her brain, enfolding it like a reptile's maw, and Nor disintegrated. Someone scraped up her pieces and put her together. She was slithering down steps as cold and unforgiving as faith's hold. Liquid heat simmered in her eyes. Her knees bumped and banged. One shoe jammed in a crack at the edge of the staircase. Someone yanked her foot out and continued dragging her. She was placed on a hard surface. Mist and incense smoke roiled in a vortex around her. Her eyes watered from the fumes. Through the haze, she glimpsed figures revolving slowly. Half a dozen, maybe more. They drummed long spear-like objects on their sneakers and boots. She licked her lips. Her tongue was a festering ulcer, her head a beehive of bewilderment. Pain squeezed her shoulders when Nora raised her head. She moaned. She was lying on her stomach on a narrow ledge inside the citadel, a long rectangular room with a brick ledge running from end to end, three feet above the dry communal pool the great bathhouse. It took her a minute to realize that her wrists were throbbing. They were bound with rope. So were her ankles. For a long time, I wondered why the inhabitants of Mohenjo-Daro were so particular about the drainage system, said Tabenda. She was standing in the middle of the pool before a brick-lined circular opening about six feet wide. Mist wreathed the hole, and Noor couldn't see inside it. 
Tabinda wore a fan-shaped metallic headdress, with its edges dipped to create circular indentations at both ends. Flames flickered in small clay lamps placed inside these hollows. Her face was red with heat and perspiration, the half-paralysis so bad it seemed she was scalded on one side. Every house had its own drain connected to a network of brick channels in the streets. The channels ran clever courses and ended here in the bathhouse. I couldn't understand why they'd want to dump sewage here. It didn't make sense. Tabinda was surrounded by a procession of seven figures, cadets wearing glittering bangles on their arms and circling dia lamps in the dense air. Smoke plumed in rapid spirals, thickening their features, sending sooty entrails across faces shining like glass. Tabriz and Rahim were among them. Tabriz's freckles glistened. It wasn't until Fossil and I unearthed the intricate network of brick-lined conduits below the citadel that we understood the purpose of this extensive system. The seven boys began to gyrate their way across the pool. Their eyes were glassy. The lamps flared and guttered. They disappeared in the murk. Nora's heart beat so fast she could feel her limbs jerk with every pulsation. Terror had driven the pain away. To this day, the indescript remains indecipherable to others, but Fossil said he had translated it. The meanings of the symbols came to him in a dream, he said. A grotesque half-smile cracked the right side of her face. Inscriptions he found on some seals described the resident's belief in a supreme father. They called this deity the terrible emperor of the night, said that he ruled the meat city in the sky with a lightning arm and a thunder fist, and that he had a hungry mouth on earth. Ancients in other cultures knew of this mouth. In their poems they called it the Os Dorsos. She was mad. The woman was mad. Nor's blood was ice in her vessels. She strained at the ropes binding her limbs, but it was useless. She was tightly trussed. She arched her back and looked at her captors. A bar had materialized beside the professor. In his hand was a long piece of black glass the size of a child's femur. Similar, Nor realized, to what she had glimpsed in the street. Devil glass. Abar's blank gaze was riveted on her. He ran a finger across the jagged edge of the weapon, and it came away black with blood. Abar wiped his finger on his school sweater. There was no cut. This wasn't a bathhouse, you see. This was an ablution pool, Tabenda said gently, as if explaining to a child filled with the city's libation. It took Nora a moment to understand what that meant. When she did, her flesh went cold. Once a year, the Omphalos would torten and the door to his house swing open. At some point in their history, during years of drought and starvation, perhaps, 
The residents turned to their children. Always the oldest offspring lain carefully by the blood gutters. It wasn't until enemy races conquered Mohenjo-Daro that the practice finally came to an end, Tabinda said. She rubbed her throat absently. The following year, however, in one night the entire city along with its new rulers was destroyed. The cadets reappeared, dragging a sizable bundle across the dry pool. It left a glistening black trail fading into the mist. A hand dropped from the bundle. Nora began to tremble, her breath hitching. The fingertips were white, the nails perfectly manicured. How could we have known when we began the dig, said Tabinda. Behind her, a bar stood passing the glass knife from one hand to the other. It sparkled in the gloom. I wanted to flee when the dream started, but Fossil wouldn't hear of it. He wanted to study the darkness, as he put it. The tablets and seals indicated the secret room was real. And he said he would find it. They placed the bundle before the brick-lined drain. Tabenda stooped, rummaged, and heaved out a lolling object, which might have been a human head. The oil lamp nearest her winked out. The bundle twitched and began to move. Tabinda tilted her head to the sky. The incense swirled a wreath around her head. After the laborers died, after the attempt on his life, Fossil was so shaken, he flew out the next day. I left quickly myself, spent years convincing myself it was a bout of madness, PTSD or some shit like that, but the nightmares just wouldn't stop. Every night the same voices and faces, this fucking room with its heaps of glass. Then I read about exposure therapy, flood yourself with what you fear most. Sounds like a good idea, I thought. Return to the city on the anniversary of the day the horror began. Pop in, pop out, be done, never go back. Nor was shaking. Her bladder let go and wetness spread from her thighs to her navel. The cadets had begun to chant. The voices loud and eerily synergistic in the murk rose higher and higher. Our blood yours, our meat, yours. On this day, gladly we give you our sins. Tabinda uttered a sudden sob. Her eyes were craters filled with fear and exhilaration. Abar stepped forward. Don't cry, slut. Don't you dare, he said in a guttural voice that wasn't his. For this part, we steal our heart. He handed her the knife. It nicked the hollow below her thumb and a drop of blood appeared. Tabenda held the glass knife high like a hammer. The muscles of her shoulders were quivering. The knife blade lashed out. A gurgling sound on the bundle was thrashing. The perfect fingernails drummed. Tabenda's hand sawed back and forth and glistening dark liquid gushed into the hole. He whose house is a boil... The Adar Ansha, the croucher in the mounds, the terrible emperor of the night. Nor was mute with fear. This wasn't happening. 
This couldn't be happening. She was at the college in Pachara. There had been an accident, and she was in a coma. She was still in the burn center at New York Presbyterian after the blast. Her shoulder burns had become infected, and she was delirious, watching her wounds glisten blue-green. The cadets crooned and gathered around her. The glass spears were thrown away. Between them, they hauled her to the edge of the hole, bare feet chafing on the brick. Tabinda paused, leaned back, wiped her forehead. In the lamp flame, the liquid pouring down the hole was ochre. Tabinda murmured. A bar grabbed Nor's head and yanked it back. Fiery bits of glass impaled on metal skewers were jabbed into her nostrils. She struggled, but it was futile. The smoke singed her sinuses, parched her tongue, flayed her throat. She gasped for water. A metal chalice was thrust into her hand, and she drank eagerly, a grainy hot liquid that could have been molten glass or blood swirled with sand. In this new state, this moiled clenching, Nora rose. She was twisted upward in a spiral, beguiling as the lines on a newborn's palm. Below her were barren lands, stripped by heat. Their dwellers evolved into the formless. Towering mammoth structures squelched in magma. Half buried in this boiling ground were giant hunchbacks whose humps formed the city's mounds. When they stirred, brackish fluid gushed through ciliated maps, wavering from their flesh. The maps beat with an unnatural rhythm. Drawn from the hunchback's vasculature, they pumped pyroclastic liquid through the land's anatomy. A veined umbilical cord surged from the city center, rising higher and higher, trembling through its singed sky until it traversed it. The cord shot outward, connecting this world with a blue-green one. My blood is yours. My skin is yours. Nor splayed her hooves against the throbbing meat tunnel of this omphalus and crawled up, down inside it like a spider. She had three faces, myriad eyes, and a swollen belly. Her brother Munir hung impaled on a giant claw on the opposite wall. His tongue was rotten. He was covered with running sores. As she watched with her dozen eyes, he swelled suddenly and exploded. Nor cried out, her many limbs retracted. Suddenly she was falling, tumbling, plummeting until she landed on a hard surface, shattering her extraneous appendages. A dense liquid clogged her airways. She couldn't breathe. She gasped and kicked, and someone slapped her back, grabbed her hair, pulled her up. She sat before the now bubbling aperture, drenched in hot blood. Clots were already beginning to form in her hair. The citadel was dark except for the intermittent flaring of oil lamps. The mist was thicker, the whirling of the procession speedier. Nora couldn't make out who they were, how many they were. The locus of the dance had shifted away from her toward the other end of the pool. She couldn't see Tabinda anywhere. Her hands and feet were still tied. Sobbing, she slid backward on her buttocks, turned and began wriggling to the ledge like a worm. Faces glistening with blood protruded from the mist and disappeared. Hundreds of eyes blinked and died. Someone touched her foot. 
nor screamed. Images of that monstrous city swirled in her brain, and her eyes bulged until a red curtain slipped over her vision, just like in the early days after Munir's death. The smell of his flesh cooked from the blast on her skin. The sharp iron odor of his blood. The taste of her own misery and terror as she stood shrieking in the summer wind, watching the red and white debris that was once her brother, that would come to her months after she left the hospital. In the end, Munir had been the only one to die that terrible day. She, she had run to a cop, had fled her murderous sibling, and had been fleeing since. But afterward, everywhere she looked was a skein of red death, wavering like a heat cloud, in the evenings and in the shadowy mornings, until she could hardly leave the house. Her removal to Pakistan had been a relief. The Pashtun boy Dara's face loomed above her. It was covered with gashes. He had blood around his mouth. He put a finger to his lips. Shh. Slid a glass knife out and began to hack at the rope around her ankles. The air thrummed. Voltaic ideograms crackled in the mist. A blue-black diagonal shimmered 20 feet away. A door set low and very wide. The oil lamps were clustered around it, flickering like fireflies. Dara's hands dripped with sweat. A final swipe and her feet were free. She couldn't believe it. She could move her legs. Sobbing with relief, she flexed her thighs until she was on her knees. Her period was flowing again, but she hardly noticed it. It pulled around her feet and snaked toward the libation hole. The knife moved to her wrists. Goat. Dara said, his eyes dead and crimson. Depart, goat. Leave before he arrives. He slashed at the rope on her wrists until it too gave, nor tottered to a stand. The room tilted and her vision turned foggy. She shook her head. A loud noise like a door banging shut in the wind came from behind her. Someone screamed in terror or triumph. Without looking back, Nor broke into a run. Blackness behind her and darkness in front, she lurched to the stairway and took them three at a time. On the ninth step, she slipped, and the crack of her butt landed on its edge. Such pain rocketed through her, she thought she'd fractured her spine. Scraping noises in the distance, then galloping. Whatever it was, it moved fast. One hand on her hip, teeth clenched, heart thundering in her ears, Nora glanced back. Tabinda was at the first step, snorting, pawing at the bricks. She was on all fours. Her face was completely static now, her forehead smooth. Not a fold, not a single crease, as if she were made from polished glass. Drool dangled in corkscrew threads from her chin. As Nora watched, Tabinda lowered her head, sniffed the bricks stained with Nora's menstrual blood, and began to lap at them. Nor turned and scuttled up the rest of the stairs. Pain chewed her ribs and back and hips, but she leapt blindly, not caring if she broke every bone in her body. Tabinda's smell behind her was acrid and meaty. It rushed at Nor. Nor vaulted across the last step and sprang toward the iron door. Outside, the fog was a solid wall. Nor slammed through it, running, blind and barefoot, using the brooding stupa as her only directional marker. 
Chips of glass and sharp pebbles stung her soles. Branches and what felt like bird bones crunched. Something bellowed behind her. A loud animal grunt, then a pause. Nora clapped a hand over her mouth and kept running. She was wet and cold and trembling. Where was the fucking chopper? The night sky was silent. Her chalois was soaked. She expected to crash face first into a wall any moment now. Instead, the sounds of the creature faded behind her. Was it licking her blood trail at every step? Nor fled, weeping. The sharp bites of the alley became hard ground. The fog thinned, showing her the school bus sprawled in the lot like a dead animal. She bounded toward it before remembering she didn't have the keys. Nor wanted to scream, to slap her breasts, and fall down crying. She fought the impulse. Behind her, the city was wailing. An ear-splitting, surreal ululation that bounced from wall to wall, door to door, and razored through her head. Lights bobbed in the corner of her eye. She sped past the vehicle, heading toward the road, winding out of the ruins, spraying up dirt behind her. The fog thickened again. Icy air knifed in and out of her lungs. When the sounds of the ruins died, she slowed to a trot. She was shaking all over and crying. Hot tears on frosted cheeks. Her feet were slippery with blood and stung in a hundred places. She had no idea where she was, and the moon was dead somewhere. She was plodding through squelching mud now. Another step and her foot sank ankle deep. The wind whistled and picked up. Something rattled. She flinched from the sound. Pattering of feet or clumping of hooves. Terror washed over her. She yanked her foot out, lunged and landed in gelid water. Something slithered over her foot. A shower of water plumed over her when she struggled upright, tripped, and nearly fell again. A misshapen root, wide as her arm. She was at the riverbank. Had she once thought it smell rotten? It was mossy and sweet. The Sind River gurgled and babbled, malformed cypress knees poking out of the fog like tombstones. Ghost acacia and lilacs swayed above her, their cocooned branches rustling. Glinting eyes speckled the webs. They undulated and disappeared as she splashed through the tree line. The fog curtain was so dense now she could wrap it around herself and disappear forever. A figure bobbed ahead in the trees. A flash of light that ignited the mist briefly and was gone. Nora's eyes widened. Her heart lurched and began to thunder in her temples. Part of her wanted to turn and bolt. But what if it was the army come to find them? With utmost care, she lifted the cuffs of her showa and tiptoed through the water. Curls of dark moss, like a woman's hair, floated between her legs, which gleamed with congealed blood. The cypress knees were more numerous here. They protruded in various geometric shapes. One was almost like a little stool. Her sight rippled, but not before she saw the figure crouching in the foliage. It was very tall and angular, and seemed to perch on or by a poplar trunk. It wore something around its head, which could have been a headdress or a shawl. Hamid, the bus driver. It had to be him. 
Dear God, let it be him. Nor choked back a sob and sloshed through mist and river water toward the silent figure riding the trees. <sighs> that was intense. <laughs> Uh, when I first listened to the story, it ended right at midnight, and I definitely stayed awake long after wondering if a horned demon was going to come after me. I'm totally with you there. I mean, this was one of the creepiest stories on our list. And it successfully combines a number of seemingly unrelated elements. There's a woman haunted by her past, religious conflict, and a supernatural horror story. Yeah, and I totally fell down the rabbit hole of Wikipedia, and I looked up all the historical details that are mentioned throughout the story. And for those interested, Mohenjo-Daro is a real archaeological site, and many of the physical details and ancient items described in the story are real. Yeah, that's that was one of the interesting discoveries I made after reading the story as well. And the next time I speak to Usman, I'm going to have to ask him what inspired uh, the story. I mean, I'm assuming he visited the site at some point, but what what the connection was between the site and the story he chose to tell, I've got to, I've got to hear the, the background on that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. We could probably talk about this story for hours, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Diana, thanks as always for being my partner in terror. You're very welcome. And if you like our vibe, please drop us a five-star review wherever you listen to this podcast. And join us again next time when a young woman enters into a perilous relationship with a monster out of Japanese folklore. Take care for now and pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 47, features In the Ruins of Mahenjo-Daro by Usman T. Malik. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Asadolahi. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw and executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Diana M. Foe. Performed by Sharomi Arsario. Audio produced by Spoken Realms. Additional editing by Angela Yi. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.